And we've come to the end. This is it. This is, we've been making our way through this series, The Gospel Clarity, and this is the last installment. So this is what you've been waiting for, right? The climax, the pinnacle. This is, this is it. I'm excited about what God might say to us today through His Word. And I'm thankful for this series that we've had as we've talked about gospel clarity, that we see the gospel for what it really is, that we know the gospel that we see that the gospel is central to everything that we do as Christians and everything that we do as a church. We can never move on and get past the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's read here this passage together. If you would stand with me out of reverence and awe for God's word this morning as we read this together. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful truths from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Please. Show me your glory. Those are the words spoken by Moses in Exodus 33 to God. And I wonder if Moses knew what he was asking for when he made that petition to God. Did he understand what it was that he was asking for? After all, who says that? Who has the audacity to go to God and say, God, show me your glory? We know that Moses had some inkling, some understanding that God was glorious or else he would not have asked to see God's glory. And God, in his graciousness, answered Moses and promised to place Moses in the cleft of the rock 
put his hand over Moses and to let his glory pass by. And as his glory passed by, the Lord would take away his hand for one moment so that Moses could see the Lord's backside. But Moses could not see the face of the Lord. For it says, for no one could see the face of the Lord and live. And so Moses was placed in the cleft of the rock. God passed by. And as God was passing by, Moses heard the name of the Lord proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And as that was happening, Moses fell on his face and worshipped. Just seeing a small glimpse of God's glory had an impact on Moses. But notice the obstacle that kept Moses from seeing more of God's glory. Was it the cleft of the rock that Moses was in that obstructed his view? Was it God's hand that obstructed his view? While all of those played a part, the biggest obstacle that kept Moses from seeing more of God's glory was Moses himself. For no man could see the face of the Lord and live. No man could look into the full brightness of God's glory and remain alive. It was Moses in his human nature that could not tolerate seeing all of God's glory. And at the end of the day, Moses was the obstacle that interfered with seeing the full glory of God. When things obstruct our view... It can be frustrating. We want that thing to get out of the way, to move so that we're able to see the TV. If you have small kids, you know what I'm talking about. I can't see because you're standing right in my way. Just like there are obstacles that get in the way of our vision, we face obstacles which seek to interfere with us seeing the light of the gospel and so Keep us from the glory of God. There is a danger Paul has to address in the very first verse here of chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians. He has received a ministry by the mercy of God, this ministry of the gospel. And the danger is that one could lose heart in the midst of this ministry. It could be that we want to throw in the towel. We could be tempted to say, it's not worth it. There's something better that we can do with our time. Or perhaps, even worse, we could be tempted to think, in the midst of this ministry, nothing will happen. Nothing will change. There will be no difference that is made. Sometimes what causes us to get discouraged is the hearts of people that we see around us in the world. 
We look at the hearts of people and we start to lose our enthusiasm for the gospel because of what we see in other people's hearts. And we know what's in other people's hearts because we see these very things also in our hearts and we struggle with them in our hearts as well. We know the selfish, discontent, fickle hearts that we possess. We know the hearts that have been hardened by unbelief, like the sun scorching the earth. Hearts that appear impenetrable. We know darkened hearts. The hearts that are missing something. The hearts that are dead and lifeless. The hearts where joy and satisfaction and fullness have escaped them. With such hearts all around us, we might be tempted to give up, to give in, to throw in the towel, to lose heart. In the midst of gospel ministry, however, we do not lose heart. We do not give up. We do not get discouraged. But when we are so resolved not to lose heart, there are certain things that must accompany that resolve. So instead of losing heart in the midst of gospel ministry, here's how we are to respond. This is how we battle the temptation not to lose heart. So three things this morning. Number one, how is it that we do not lose heart in the midst of gospel ministry? Number one, we do not change the gospel. We do not change the gospel. Have you ever been under pressure? Have you ever felt like something is weighing you down? Pressure for you to act? Pressure for you to say something? Pressure is placed on us by the way that we think. So sometimes this pressure comes from within us. We put on ourselves. Other times, this pressure can be placed on us by others. They try to pressure us into doing something. Our kids learn this at a young age. If they just press hard enough, if they just nag long enough, if they just whine and complain loud enough, if they cry and throw a tantrum, pout and sulk convincingly enough, finally we as the parent will give in. Here, fine, have your way. Unfortunately, we, we can teach them that if you apply enough pressure and if you know what kind of pressure to apply, you can get anyone to change and get what you want. Too often in today's world, we don't find such a different attitude and thought in many adults. What if, though, in, the, in that scenario with parents and their children, what if the parents didn't give in? What if the parent didn't change his or her mind? What if they held the line with the decision and were unable to be budged, no matter the pressure, the nagging, the whining, the sulking or tantrum that is thrown there is a message then that's sent to that child. The message is that what my parent has said, the decision that they have made, is to be honored and respected and followed and obeyed. But let me tell you, that's not always easy. Paul, in our verses today, felt some pressure. 
He felt pressure from the outside. He felt pressure from other people. He felt pressure from other people whom, according to worldly standards, looked like they were experiencing great success, progress, and fame. Paul could have felt pressure to change, pressure to do things differently, pressure to succumb to the mindset of many other people. Notice what it says here in verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. There is a way that people attempt to do gospel ministry that does not bring honor to God. There is a way that people can attempt to do ministry in a way that is deceptive, in a way that has the appearance of godliness but denies its power. This happens because people are doing it for their own gain. They're doing it for their own advantage. When gospel ministry is engaged solely for what you get out of it, solely for how it benefits you, solely for the purpose of how it will line your pockets or give you fame or notoriety, then it's no longer gospel ministry. It's not ministry at all because it stems from selfish, discontent heart. It may look great on the outside. It may look shiny and bright and new. It may look big, it may look impressive, it may look to the world that it's the best thing, but inwardly it's empty, bankrupt, void of any real meaning or purpose or value. Why is that? Because they've tampered with God's Word. They've tampered with the message of the Gospel. They have lived lives of cunning, cunningness, lives of deceit. And Paul says that he has refused to do this. We have refused to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. He is refusing to do what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. We remember there that it tells us the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Those who practice cunning are not leading people to Christ, they are leading people away from Christ. That is why Paul is so adamantly refusing to deceive in order to get what he wants. In fact, later in this same book, he expresses this fear among the Corinthians. He says this in 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Satan twisted God's Word. Satan questioned God's Word. Satan undermined God's Word. Satan challenged God's Word. Paul refused to do this. He refused to deceive in order to get his own way. He refused to practice cunning to make the gospel say whatever he wanted it to say. He also, here it says, refused to tamper with God's Word. That is, he refused to adulterate God's Word. He refused to dilute God's Word. Paul borrows this idea here from the world around him, and particularly those who sold wine during his day. Wine sellers 
would often water down the wine. They would dilute the wine. They would tamper with it. They would stretch the wine with water so that they could sell more wine at the same price. And so they compromised the wine's potency. Paul refused to water down God's Word. He refused to change the gospel. And he refused to do it even though there was pressure to do it. There was pressure upon him to change the gospel message, to make it something that it wasn't, to make the gospel message somehow easier to hear, to make it something that would be easier for people to accept, to make it something that really wasn't that big of a deal, to make it a message that you could either take or leave, to make it a message of convenience rather than a message of necessity. People might say, if you change the message, more people will want to hear it. More people will accept it. Paul had to warn Timothy of this very thing in 2 Timothy 4, 2-4. He says this, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's no different today, my friends. This problem is not a problem that was only reserved for Paul and Timothy in their day. The problem persists today. People would rather have a message of their own choosing, a message that tickles their ears, a message that would somehow be to their own gain and advantage. But let me tell you, if you change the gospel message once, you will have to change it again and again and again in order to give something the people want to hear. Do you ever think that this temptation would come to us today? Lighten up, Tyler. Why don't you tell some more jokes? Why don't you tell some more cute anecdotes that we can laugh at and think are funny? Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about holiness. Don't talk about those things. Nobody wants to hear about those things. Don't tell us anything that might make us uncomfortable because heaven forbid that we would ever feel uncomfortable in church. No, we refuse to change the gospel because if we change the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. It's no longer good news. We have nothing different to offer the world. We have nothing of any lasting value. We have nothing that will save souls. We have nothing that will give God all the glory. We have nothing that will bring everlasting joy. We have nothing that will offer hope or peace or comfort. All we have left is trying to grasp the wind, hoping to find some meaning or some value in our little, fragile, self-focused, self-absorbed life. We refuse to change the gospel because it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes. And we are willing to put our money where our mouth is. That's what Paul does here in these verses. Do you see that? But by open statement of the truth. Check it out. Check out what we're saying. You can go to God's word. You can look at it. Check out 
the statement of the truth that we are making. Look at it for yourselves. This is not done in some secret society. This is not something that we're trying to hide from anybody. Check it out yourself according to God's Word. And Paul goes even further to say, I'm going to back it up with my own life. Our lives should match up with the gospel that we proclaim. Paul says here, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In the sight of God, am I living in accordance with the gospel that I am preaching? Do you see a difference in the way that I live my life? We refuse to change the gospel because no other message will have the, have the kind of lasting, heart-transforming change that we need in our lives it's not the gospel that needs to change. It is we who need to change. And that will only ever happen through an undiluted, unhindered, unchanged gospel. Number two this morning. We keep Christ at the center of the gospel. Now the reason why we do not lose heart because we keep Christ at the center of the gospel. At this very moment... We are speeding through space, living on a little blue ball. And as we speed through space on this little blue ball, we're revolving around a bigger ball, the sun. And you know what keeps us in orbit of that sun? It's the sun's gravitational pull. What would happen if the sun's gravitational pull were to stop? We would go hurling off into space. If you've ever had a rope or string and you put a ball at the end of that string and you swung it around and then you let it go, and the ball would go flying off. That was what would happen if there was no gravitational pull of the sun. <laughs> there was no gravitational pull of the sun, we would be lost. So it is with our gospel. Without the pull of Jesus Christ at the center, everything would be lost. Everything in the gospel revolves around Him. That is why He must be at the center of the gospel. It's He that holds everything together. And Paul puts before us in the next few verses a heartbreaking truth. And at the same time, a very sobering warning. And it's this. There are those people who will never see the clarity of the gospel. There will be people who never accept the gospel. There will be people to whom the gospel will always be veiled. There is something that gets in the way, something that hinders, something that keeps them from seeing the gospel. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Paul says there is a category for people. There's a category for people, and that category for some is the category of perishing. They will never believe. They will never understand. They will never see. They will never come to faith. They will never turn. They will never taste and see that the Lord is good. How I long, how we should long, that no one would ever be in that category of the perishing. That not only would they hear the gospel, but that they would see and believe that the veil would be taken away. Yet we see that it's Satan who gets in the way. We've come full circle here in our series because if you remember where we started in Genesis 3, 
the struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The struggle is still happening here in these verses. And Satan, here he's called the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Satan goes to great lengths to hinder and keep people in their blindness. Satan goes to great lengths to make sure that people do not see. This doesn't necessarily mean that people don't hear the gospel, but it definitely means that they do not accept the gospel. They find no spiritual beauty in the gospel. There is nothing they find that attracts them and captivates them that they would be willing to lose everything that they have in order to receive what they could never earn. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them in their unbelief. And in that state of unbelief, their heart remains hard. The blinding work of Satan does not exempt people from personal responsibility. They continue to harden their own heart with unbelief. But the God of this world makes it his mission to blind people, to keep them from seeing. Satan blinds, but the true God opens the eyes of the blind. This is the fact why Jesus came. He says this in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The opening of the eyes of the blind is even what Paul experienced in his own conversion. After Ananias had come to him and laid hands upon him, it says this in Acts 9.18, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. God opens the eyes of the blind while Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. He does this because the last thing that Satan wants people to see is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now I want us to notice something here. Satan does not keep the light from shining. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is shining. Satan can never stop this light. Satan can never overcome this light. Satan can never diminish this light. Satan's goal is to keep people from seeing the light. Satan wants to blind people to the glorious Christ because in the light of the gospel, it unveils the gloriousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We want people to see Christ's glory from beginning to end. We want people to behold the beauty of the King. We want them to see the gloriousness of Christ in His incarnation. That Jesus would leave heaven, become a man, and take on flesh, humbling Himself by becoming a servant. That we would see the gloriousness of His life, a life lived in complete obedience to the Heavenly Father, a sinless and perfect life, a life where He came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many, a life that would go out and search and seek for those who are lost and would bring Him into His arms and bring Him into His fold and show them compassion, show them healing, show them His love. 
was a life that was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A life that suffered and endured the pain, the scoffing, the ridicule, being beaten and scourged, having his body nailed to a cross. To be shamed by hanging naked on a cross where he was lifted up for all to see. Where insults were hurled upon him, where his side was pierced, where he breathed his last. A glorious life where then he was removed from the cross, buried in a tomb. But three days later, death could not hold him down, but he rose again from the dead in victory and glory and splendor, where later he ascended into heaven to take his seat at the Father's right hand. Do you see the glory of Christ in the gospel? Have you been captivated by his beauty? The gospel is the means whereby we are released from our prison and from our captivity so that we're able to look upon the glory of God. Why is Christ so glorious? Paul explains it here. You see what it says there at the end of verse 4. Who is the image of God? There is a distinction we have to make here. We are created in God's image, but Jesus uniquely is the image of God. That is, if you want to know God, you want to know who God is, you look no further than Jesus. He is the only one who is the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus says in John 1.18, or it's said of Jesus, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, that's Jesus, has made him known. When you see Christ as glorious, you're not just seeing Christ, you're seeing God. This is what is wrapped up in the glory of Christ. There is no one else who is the image of God. There is no other way to get to God. It is only through Jesus Christ who is the image of God. This is the glorious, crucified Savior who is at the center of the gospel. And Paul says it is at the center of his proclamation of the gospel. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We do not put ourselves at the center of the gospel. We do not make ourselves the most important person in the story. No, it's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about Him as Lord. It's all about seeing and savoring Him. We who proclaim the gospel are merely servants for Jesus' sake, like Paul says. Jesus Christ must be at the center because He is the only way to God. And so let me ask you this morning, have you seen the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you beheld His glory and His beauty? And if you have, does it captivate you to the point where He then is your treasure? He is what you cherish above everything else. Satan hates Christ. And he would rather there be anything else in the center than Jesus Christ. 
But then there is no longer the good news of salvation. Christ must be at the center of the gospel. And it is this gospel that brings us to glory. Number three this morning and finally. We, do not, uh, we believe God uses the gospel to show his glory. We believe God uses the gospel to show his glory. We would imagine in our minds for a moment complete darkness, complete emptiness, complete nothingness. That's all that there was before the beginning. And it was into this emptiness, it was into this nothingness, it was into this void and darkness that God spoke. Let there be light. And by the power of his word, there was light. Where there had been nothing, now there was something. Where there was only emptiness, the void was being filled. Where there was once only darkness, now there was light. It is the amazing, spectacular, astounding, jaw-dropping, mesmerizing, creative act of God. It stretches our comprehension to know the power of God that is able to create light out of nothing. And Paul uses this act of creation that we see in the Bible, and he relates it to our conversion. The Lord who said, let light shine out of darkness, the very first time, at the very beginning, who spoke into that darkness and into that nothingness, the Lord who created out of nothing, has done a similar act of creation in our life. God's word creates again to make us new creation. But this time, where is the darkness? The darkness is not out there. The darkness is not necessarily darkness that surrounds us, but it is a darkness, a void, a nothingness within us. This is light that God creates. It is His light. Our preaching and our proclamation of the gospel is not what creates the light. God is the one who says, let light shine in the darkest of hearts. That is why this light, the light of the gospel, must shine in our hearts. We need the light to shine in our hearts, to expose the sin, to expose the death, to expose the decay that is in us that must be dealt with. If there was already light in our hearts, there would be no need for God to shine the light in our hearts. But before salvation, there is no light. It's only God's creative act of shining the light of the gospel within our hearts that the darkness is expelled. Before Christ, our hearts were only darkened hearts. We need the light to show the greatness of the glory of our God and of our Christ. Listen to these verses. 1 Peter 2.19 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, what is the light 
that God has shown in our hearts. Look at what it says here. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This light is given is the knowledge of the glory of God. Satan would blind our eyes from seeing the glory of Christ, but God would open our eyes so that we're able to behold His glory. That God would open up our eyes, that we would see that He is the King of glory. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord hosts. The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And now we're able to have a knowledge of this glory. We are able to see God's glory. We are able to experience God's glory put on display. But where? Where is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining? It's shining here in the face of Jesus Christ. God uses the gospel of Jesus Christ to show his great and awesome glory. This is where we come to understand that the glory of Christ is the glory of God. We cannot separate the true. Because once you see the brightness of the light of Christ, it's really then that you see the glory of God. And where does the glory of Christ shine the brightest? In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those events that are at the very core of the gospel. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is only seen in the face of Jesus Christ. You ever think about that? The face of Jesus Christ. How, how do we see the face of Jesus Christ? <laughs> I mean, I've never seen the physical face of Jesus Christ. One day I will see the face of Jesus Christ. One day I will see His glory shining in its full brightness, but... I haven't seen his face yet. What is Paul talking about? How can we see this in the face of Jesus Christ? Well, as Paul says this idea here of the face of Jesus Christ, he's referring to the whole person of Jesus Christ. When you talk to somebody, where do you look? You look at their face. That's where you talk to someone. That's where you, where you communicate with them. That's where, that's where you begin to see and experience their person. Is in their face. So how is it that we're going to see the face of Jesus Christ? We're going to see it in His person and in His work through God's Word. As we understand who He is, as we understand what He has done, it is then that we begin to see His full face. And then we look forward to that day, as it talks about in 1 John, when we will see His face fully. We'll stand in front of Him face to face, and finally and fully, we will be made like Him. Why? Because we will see Him as He truly is. We will see the full brightness of the face of Jesus Christ when we stand before Him in glory. And this Glory that emanates from the face of Christ reminds us of Moses' face. Do you remember Moses again? Moses' face shone after he had been with God and talked with God. And Moses' face was so bright after those encounters that he would have to put a veil over his face. 
But that glory that was reflected upon Moses' face would fade over time. The glory that emanates from the face of Jesus Christ never fades away. It never diminishes. It never ceases. It will continue forever to shine. But this might bring us to a hurdle in our minds. If the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ, doesn't that detract from God's glory? Isn't Christ somehow taking something away from God's glory? Isn't God's glory somehow being minimized? But here is what Paul is telling us. By by focusing on Jesus Christ, God's glory is being maximized. If you want to know the fullness of God's glory, if you want the full brightness of God's glory, if God's glory is to be maximized to its greatest potential, it is only done in Jesus Christ and through the gospel which exalts His person and His work. So, if that's the glory that we long for, what's so good about it? What's so good about God's glory as shown in the gospel? We only see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because God is there. When the glory of God is present God Himself is present. That is, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are being brought in to God's presence. After King Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8, we read that the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That was because God's presence was filling the house. When Isaiah had the vision of the Lord in the temple, in Isaiah 6, it says the house was filled with smoke, which represented the glory of the Lord, which meant that God was in their midst. So it is this light of the gospel of the glory of Christ that means that we have been given the gift of God Himself. We are brought into the very presence of God. And when you are brought into the very presence of God, you cannot stay the same. The glory of God changes you. The glory of God transforms you. The glory of God shows you that you cannot stay the same. And it provides a deep desire within your heart to live your life now to please Him. To purify yourself as He is pure. To walk as children of the light And because of this lie, you now live your life. Look at what it says here in 3.18, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so, as we think about seeing the gospel with clarity, and being given the gift of God, and wanting to see the glory of God, and wanting to experience the glory of God, and wanting to be in His very presence. Is this the gospel that you know? Do you see why the gospel is so important? Do you see why we need gospel clarity? Do you see what's at stake in the gospel? It is the gospel that brings us the glory of God. It is the gospel where we see the glory of God. 
It is the gospel that gives us God. And it's the gospel that changes everything. It's the gospel that we need. And it's the gospel that we need to proclaim to unbelievers with urgency and broken hearts because we do not want to see them fall into the category of the perishing. It is the gospel that we as believers need in our lives every single day to anchor us to hope and peace and forgiveness and security and life in Christ. Others' lives depend upon the gospel and our lives depend upon the gospel as well. Please, please, God, show us your glory. Who says that? We do. We do. Let's pray. God, would you show us your glory? And would we be captivated by your glory? And would you use your glory to change us and transform us and mold us into a community that has gospel clarity? Lord, I pray that we would stand in awe of this glory that you have shown to us in the gospel, that we would not take it for granted that we would not minimize it, but that we would maximize it as we proclaim Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, as we do these things, as we do not change the gospel, as we keep Christ the center of the gospel, as we believe you show your glory through the gospel, Help us not to lose heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.